Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo host and producer of the show. Today, we're discussing spiritual kinship and mutuality, how we as individuals can contribute to the repair of the world and ourselves in this polarized time in history. I'm delighted to welcome as my guest today, Dr. Pamela Ayo-Yatundi, author of the book we'll be discussing today, Casting Indra's Net, Fostering Spiritual Kinship and Community. Wisdom from Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, and more. Pamela Pamela Ayoyatende is a lawyer and has a doctor of theology and pastoral counseling. She's an activist, lay Buddhist teacher, professor, pastoral counselor, and writer. She's the co-editor of Black and Buddhist, What Buddhism Can Teach Us About Race, Resilience, Transformation, and Freedom, as well as the author of two volumes on pastoral care. Her articles appear in Buddha Dharma, Lion's Roar, Journal of Buddhist Christian Studies, Religions, and Feminist Theology. She also serves as an associate editor for Lion's Roar magazine and has been featured on NBC.com and the Tamron Hall Show. She appears regularly in major online summits concerning spirituality and caregiving. Her website, where you can find out more about her programs and books, is her name, Pamela Ayo, which is A-Y-O, Yatunde, Y-E-T-U-N-D-E dot com, Pamela Ayo Yatunde dot com. You can also follow her on Facebook and LinkedIn at Pamela Ayo Yatunde and on Twitter at P-I-O-Y. 10. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Pamela Ayoyatunde. I'm delighted you could join me today on the show. Thank you. I was so eager to say hello. <laughs> I apologize for that early <laughs> no. interruption, but hello no, and no, thank you okay. so much. Thank you, Laurel, for inviting me to be a part of the Yoga Hour. So before we dive into our dialogue about spiritual kinship and mutuality, let's begin as we like to begin here on the Yoga Hour, let's begin with a moment of being here, right here, right now. So let's start by bringing our attention to our bodies in space. Just feeling our bodies, whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing, walking, driving, just feeling our bodies and particularly noticing the surfaces that support our weight. Where are our feet? What part of our weight is supported in the chair if we're sitting? And now bring our attention to the breath. And just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. Just staying with the breath, noticing each inhale and each exhale. 
On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, noticing how now the air is warm. And just staying with the breathing, here's something to contemplate from Yogacharya O'Brien, the founder and spiritual director for this program. This is from her online course, Dharma 365. Compassion is the open-hearted experience of sharing in the suffering of another that moves us to act. Widening the circle of our love and care into inspired action is the natural trajectory of the dharmic life. When we take an active role to search out every day what is working in our community and in our world, particularly what gives us hope and inspires us about being alive in the world today, our heart begins to open. We find the courage we need to take the positive action that is ours to take. It is compassion, the power of awakened love that moves meditative awareness into dharmic action. We find the courage we need to take the positive action that is ours to take. It is compassion, the power of awakened love that moves meditative awareness into dharmic action. Oh. Once again, Pamela Ayo Yatunde, welcome to the Yoga Hour. Ayo, I know you. that you prefer to go by that name, by your spiritual name, so that's how I'll what I'll uh, call you, but I want people to know your full name so they can find your website at PamelaIOYutente.com. Thank you, Laurel. Hey, can I, if, if you don't mind, actually my middle name, Ayo, is a name that I gave to myself. Ah. Uh, it's not my Dharma name. My Dharma name is Boundless Heart, um, but Ayo means joy, and it's a name that I gave to myself. Oh, lovely. That's a lovely uh, name and a lovely meaning. It's a pleasure to have you here on the show to discuss your book, Casting Indra's Net, and this idea of spiritual kinship and mutuality, and how that practice of spiritual kinship and mutuality can help us have a positive impact and contribute to the repair of the world, which is something I think a lot of us realize is a big need right now in the world. I wanted to start talking about your background because it was really interesting to me. You were a lawyer and worked in the financial world, and then you were drawn to um, growing in your spiritual life. You studied Buddhism and you got a degree in theology, and now you're a spiritual teacher and pastoral counselor and have done a lot of work to support people who are dying. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to write this book about fostering spiritual kinship and community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think like many, many people, I'm concerned about how we're treating one another. And with all of this wisdom that has been handed down to us, uh, it seems like more and more of us, are, we know about it, but we're rejecting it. Or we are distorting it for political purposes, 
and actually people are dying as a consequence of it. Mm -hmm. And so as someone who's trying to observe what's taking place in our world and being concerned about how dangerous it is these days and increasingly so, not wanting to be the kind of person who said, I never said anything about it when I could. Mm -hmm. I decided that I would make a very humble effort to put my thoughts onto paper, so to speak, with the hope that I could maybe reach a few people to say, we can, I know we can do better than this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I shared this question that you you set forth in the preface where you say what happened to us why mm -hmm. did many of us choose brutality over mutuality and i think that all the time what happened to this idea that civility was important that uh that one of our responsibilities as as adults and as as human beings is to is to have our hearts be open to others um where did we you know get so separated into an us versus them kind of a mentality would you say more about that yes i would well you know these these ways of seeing each other as not belonging to one another are ancient I think one of the, the one of the reasons why some of these wisdom traditions have existed as long as they have is because they are giving us uh, a, a way of being hopeful that we can move past certain impulses and urges and ignorances about one another. So here, here it is. It's it's here. It's it's all right here, right before us. Many of these traditions have addressed the very ways that we separate ourselves from one another and have offered paths, if you will, to reconcile ourselves one to the other. So lately, and I will keep this to first to the US context, but of course we know that uh, the power of the United States is is global. Mm -hmm. So what can happen here can be emulated somewhere else and has been. But what has been happening here in the United States is the intentional, methodical, political wedging of people one against the other in increasingly brutal ways where we have leaders who are structurally at the top of um, our political structures, not using their offices for the purposes of conciliation, reconciliation, mutuality, and using their position, their political position, the bully pulpit, so to speak, to drive these wedges harder and harder using almost every tool available to them such that many of us just look at another person and wonder, is this person my enemy? And if so, do I need to act against them before they act against me? 
-hmm. We're on edge like that. And obviously, in a moment's notice, that wedge can be weaponized in very violent ways mm -hmm. to where we are physically attacking one another. This, I hope, I pray, I beg, in the book, I beg, uh, needs to stop. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you, um, well, you just gave a really, you know, beautiful summary of, you know, what you, what you talk about in the book. What do you hope readers will take away from the book? Lots of things. Uh, the first thing is I hope the readers will know that they are precious, that they are innately precious, no matter what they think about themselves, no matter what other people think about them, and no, no matter what they think other people think about them. <laughs> I hope that they will come to know how precious they are. And in that preciousness, to recognize that they, that all of us have certain capacities that maybe we didn't even know we had, like the ability to be compassionate, empathetic, sympathetic, yeah, service-oriented, the ability to create space for another person in their deepest times of suffering, to listen deeply, to resonate with, uh, with their experience, to be able to affirm and validate another's fears and concerns. So as a, as a chaplain, you know, we go through a certain kind of training as chaplains, and we tend to find ourselves in clinical settings uh, hospitals, hospice organizations, but also college campuses, prisons, and so on. I firmly believe that what we learn as chaplains uh, need not stay within the chaplaincy profession, that mm -hmm. everybody can learn some of these things of chaplaincy, and we can better attend to the suffering of one another. So those are some of the things that I, uh, that I hope people uh, will gain from reading this book, as well as an appreciation of the wisdom of across traditions, because we do live in a pluralistic society. We do um, have the First Amendment, which says that the country is not to establish a religion and that everyone should have the free exercise of their religious beliefs. So with that then, and being the immigrant nation that we are, pluralism uh, is best supported by civility. And I hope that people will come to appreciate that th we live in a, a, a country that has a constitution that most countries only wish they had. Let's live into it. Great, great, you know, uh, invitation of people living into our constitution. I wanted to talk about the title that you chose for your book, Casting Indra's Net. Indra's Net is an ancient Vedic story. And when I had heard and thought about this story in the past, um, the, the, the aspect of the story that I am most familiar with is this idea of there's this net 
you know, that's over the whole world and that every place that there is a crossing of fibers, you know, of the, the warp and the weft, I think they call it, there's a jewel. And that jewel represents each of us, you know, that we each have that, you know, that um, unique set of talents and that each of us is so important to live into our gifts and our um, our sadharma, our unique place in the world, and that there's nothing that that can replace that. Mm-hmm. And you look at the same story and focus more on the mutuality aspect. So would you would you talk about that? Would you talk about how you talk about you know Indra's net and in particular maybe this word casting? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so the ancient Vedic concept of Indra's net was uh, passed down, if you will, maybe through an interreligious exchange <laughs> into Mahayana Buddhism, Hawaiian Buddhism in particular. And within this concept of Indra's net, each of us has the ability to, to see one another, uh, to reflect one another. And I say that with that capacity, then we have certain responsibilities toward one another. This mutuality, which uh, Martin Luther King Jr. talked about, and I think that's one of the reasons actually, and I, and I talk about it in the book, um, this mutuality that we are caught in a network of inescapable mutuality. And so, yes, we cannot escape it. <laughs> People are going to the edges of space, uh, but they come back, right? There's nowhere else to go right now. We are in an inescapable network of mutuality, Indra's net. So with that comes some responsibilities, right? So one, we can either live into our luminous, precious selves, right? And reflect one another. Or we can dim dim that preciousness, which is temporary. I really think that's a temporary move anyway, um, which then cuts us off temporarily or, or gives the perception, the delusion of separateness. Mm-hmm. But here we are, we're still in it. So let's let's surrender to that reality. It's not a dangerous reality. It is just the reality. So if, if we surrender to the reality of interest net being caught in the inescapable network of our mutuality, casting the net then, from my point of view, means really just being really intentional, really opening up our hearts, opening up our minds to the entire family that is in this inescapable inescapable net. Mm -hmm. And that is, when I visualize it, just talking to you now, Laurel, this is a mind-blowing visualization right? It's mind-blowing. We're meeting for the first time. I know I'm connected to you, you to me, right? So I'm not going to try to deny that. (laughs) I want to celebrate it and and say that um, I'm glad that you are here. I'm glad I'm here with you. I'm glad we are co-creating something right now in this moment. And we'll be doing that even when we are not in an immediate exchange with one another. Because I know that we are in this net and we are casting it 
you in your work, even in our opening, breathing, chanting, the beautiful quote, which I believe is true. All of this is about casting. It's about uh, opening to abundance and being held by it. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I love that. You had briefly touched on this, and I wanted to ask you more about it. You write that our healthiest nature, and I love that, the healthiest nature is to care for others who cannot care for themselves. But it takes practice not to get distracted by cultural conditioning to put ourselves first. And you give examples. In fact, the book is just full of examples from the major religions that teach about returning to our highest, healthiest nature. Would you give just a few examples, because otherwise we could spend the entire rest of the show, show on this, of what we hear about what we, you and I have just been talking about from the major religions or in the major religions? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think um, I, can, I would like to begin by saying uh, we belong to something greater. These traditions all underscore that, that belief that we all belong to something greater than ourselves. Uh, many of us have called this a, a creator being. Some say God, some say the way, um, some say process, uh, but we all have come into this existence through this creative process that some of us call God. And so because that is the case for all of us, none of us come into this existence through a different way. I go back to the kinship. That's what makes us family. Yeah, that's what makes us family. I don't know if I answered your question completely. Do you want to ask it again? Uh I loved what you said, so it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to think about about the question. But no, it was about uh, because your book, even the title, which I gave the full title, you know, that wisdom from Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, and more, and you touch into what each of these wisdom traditions has to say about the bigger premise that you're talking about about casting Indra's net. So, did you want to just give an example of some of that wisdom? Okay, so yeah, so uh, an example. Well, if, if the, uh, the one I would like to, to talk about right now is Krishna and Arjuna, you know? Um, so Krishna is telling Arjuna um, to, to go to battle with his loved ones, with his kinfolk. And Arjuna doesn't want to do that. You know, he, mm-hmm. he loves his people. <laughs> he loves his people. And, and Krishna does not let up. <laughs> he doesn't let up. That's true. He keeps put right. He keeps pushing and pushing, and Arjuna keeps pushing back and pushing back. And Arjuna's, uh, I'm sorry, Krishna is trying every conceivable way to get Arjuna to do this. So when I started reading this story for the first time, I just I didn't get it. I'm like, how how could this be? Um, and it, and I came to the story uh, through my admiration of uh, Gandhi. Right. Mm-hmm. So I had to read the Gita 
over and over and over again before I came to understand. Uh, this is my understanding. I'm not sure if other people see it this way, but uh, if this was a test, right? This was a test. And I would say many of these other traditions also, there's some kind of story about being tested. Mm -hmm. And so if we are trying to stay connected to, I'll say primordial love, people use other words. If we're trying to stay connected to that, maybe we can think about the various challenges in life as tests. Mm. How am I being tested here? How is my practice being tested here? How are my set of ethics being tested here? What is being used to seduce me away from um, this basic goodness, this innate uh, luminous quality that I have? Um, and then to refrain from it, renounce it, step back from it, question it, um, because there's so many things going on in our society right now um, that is seductive. Like, oh, for example, if you join me, if you join my way, my party will protect you. Right? Mm -hmm. If you engage in violence, we'll pay your legal fees. Mm -hmm. If you lie, um, we'll we'll tell another story. Right? We'll protect you. Mm -hmm. And so it's important for us to, to not fall into those traps. And these stories, all of these stories are, are ways of illustrating how easy it is to be seduced and to do, to do things that we know are not right, mm -hmm. but also how to practice staying in, in our, um, in our truth. That's right. Absolutely. You already had mentioned this word, this, this idea of civility, and in the book, you're calling us to a higher level of civility and contrasting that with brutality. You write, the most important choice I make over and over again within that flux, and by flux, you're talking about all of our human experiences. So you say the most important choice I make over and over again within that flux is whether or not to shape my humanness in the direction of civility even in the midst of violent threats. Would you say more about your concept mm -hmm. of civility? Yes. So I first want to say my concept of civility is not about politeness. That's right. I loved your contrast actually with Minnesota nice. My son <laughs> and his wife live in Minneapolis. So, so okay. I've experienced a little bit of that Minnesota nice. Minnesota nice, right. <laughs> I love I got I have loved ones in Minnesota. Uh, we talk about this a lot. Um, but yeah, so I'm not talking about being polite, being nice. Um, I'm not talking about being inauthentic, right, or being mm -hmm. a doormat. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how are we coexisting in society? That's that's what I mean. So going back to the Constitution, you know, it's said um, that if you're born here, you are then uh, entitled to certain rights, right? The, but, but the case is whether you're born here or not, you're still entitled to certain rights because and privileges because we honor each 
other as sentient beings. Right? If we were just robots, when we get angry with one another, we might just, you know, pull the plug and pull, <laughs> pull the energy out. But we are human beings who feel and think we belong to people. We have needs in order to survive. And it is the case that our collective survival is in peril. Okay, so since we're all facing a similar existential situation, as well as particular existential situations, for example, women uh, face a different type of existential situation, Black people, a different type, trans yes. people, different types, right? Some say um, white men have an existential threat, uh, and that is to their um, positions that they have held for a long time. So we have all these existential threats taking place, one that affects all of us. And how are we going to live through these threats without creating another threat, which is one against the other? Mm -hmm. And that is through negotiating. We have to negotiate, apparently, we have to negotiate and renegotiate the terms of our coexistence. This is what I mean by civility. Mm -hmm. So that when, uh, as we are neighbors to one another, we have certain things that we share as neighbors. We have certain things that we need as neighbors, right? And so how do we go about getting those needs met, getting those issues fixed? And then, you know, we go from family to neighborhood to community to town, city, and so on. It's layers and layers of negotiation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by civility. And how do we go about deciding who is included in, yes. these, uh, in these decisions? Mm -hmm. right. To me, when I was reading about civility in the book, it seemed like there was at the center of it, perhaps something about recognizing our common humanity, um, oh, you know, yeah. recognizing um, the other still as a human, you know, as a human being mm -hmm. and not losing that, not losing that view of, of that we're all part of something, as you said, bigger than ourselves, but certainly that we not lose that, that, um, that view that we have a commonality, you know, that we are oh, human, right. that we are right. human. So yes. um, and I, connected I, to one another. Yes. yes, yes, absolutely. And we'll, we'll come back to that. I did want to take a moment and remind listeners today on the yoga hour, my guest is author and spiritual teacher, Pamela Ayo Yatunde. And we're discussing her new book, Casting Indra's Net, Fostering Spiritual Kinship and community. You can find out more about her, her books, and her speaking schedule on her website, PamelaIOYutunde.com. And again, it's PamelaIOYutunde, Y-E-T-U-N-D-E.com. This link will be on our webpage at TheYogaHour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, TheYogaHour.com, or you can also sign up for our mailing list. So coming back to um, what we were just talking about, this um, this um, 
Well, actually, there's a beautiful affirmation at the end of the introduction, which is on page 19. Um, I am a jewel in Indra's net. And I just love that. We've already mentioned the significance that has in both the Buddhist tradition and in the yoga tradition, you know, the story of Indra's net. Did you want to say more about that? I am a jewel in Indra's net. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's actually more to the affirmation that I can, <laughs> I can, let me just kind of short. So our lives depend on countless things, people, and other beings. Countless things, people, and other beings depend on us. This cosmic interconnection meets at countless points within the net of life. Each point has a jewel-like luminous and reflecting quality. I am a jewel in Indra's net. I just, it was just so beautiful. Love that. Um, thank you. Thank you. I think affirming self-talk is critical for our mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. So I've included several affirmations in the book to help promote one's mental, spiritual, and emotional well-being and self-concept. One of the things that I learned from Buddhism is how to uh, question, maybe sometimes interrogate our self-concept, right? our personality concepts, our identity concepts. And when we do that, if we do it effectively, right? and we use the breath to touch into basic parts of ourselves, then I think we can get to this, this belief that we are a node in the net. Right? What we're doing is sort of reducing this affirmation reducing our narcissistic tendency <laughs> to think that we are the net. I am the net. <laughs> right? I'm the net. That's right. I'm it. Yeah. Yeah. Do it my right. way. <laughs> right. Right. So for some for some people initially to to go through that ego reducing process can be frightening. Right, because so much of their identity and personality has built up around trying to mask the deep insecurity they feel about just being who they are on this planet. But would you feel better? I'm asking rhetorically. Would you feel better? Would you feel less insecure or more insecure if you knew that you were surrounded by countless other precious beings in the net. And there's nothing we can actually do to run away from you. Not really. So that's what I'm hoping with this, with this affirmation and with others, right? To be able to accept oneself not the narcissistic, you know, grandiose, I'm just, the, I'm just, the, I'm the net. But the, I'm just a little part along with countless other parts. And we are casting, we have the capacity to cast together 
Mm-hmm. And I and I put it I'll put it this way: if we can think of the net as truly a net, casting that net together, there's nothing on this planet that we cannot partake of, and there would be absolutely no need to go without our basic needs being met. If we could do this together. As I was reading your book, I was also thinking about this concept of interbeing that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, um, I, I never got a chance to see him you know, while he was alive, but um, my understanding is he would hold up a piece of paper and um, talk about interbeing as being able to see the cloud, the rain cloud in the paper. You know, to mm-hmm. realize that we're that connected, that um, this piece of paper relied on, you know, obviously, rain and, you know, grew as whatever fiber was included in the paper and all the people that then harvested it and, you know, made the paper. I mean, he just had this beautiful way of, uh, again, it, it hearkening back to the metaphor that you're using of really Indra's net, how we're all connected in this beautiful field and that we're so much more connected than perhaps people are aware when they feel alone or feel uh, separate. Um, And you included beautiful quote um, from actually from Martin Luther King that I had not read before about kind of the same thing, you know, about how um, every, everything, you know, where he talks about, we get up in the morning and we have our tea, you know, and then that's, you know, the connection with, uh, with China. Um, you know, coffee mm-hmm. being a connection with wherever the coffee came from, et cetera. And it was just, it's just really, it was really beautiful. Did you have anything you wanted to add about, about the um, Thich Nhat Hanh interbeing thing? Well, I'll just say that his teachings have been very profound for me. So the first Buddhist teachings I received were from Thich Nhat Hanh's book, Touching Peace. And when you talk about uh, the paper, uh, there's almost, yeah. I, Thich Nhat Hanh would also hold up a flower. He could hold up a cup. He could hold up pretty much anything and talk about the elements that uh, were required to bring that form that we may call a cup, so to speak, into existence. Mm. And the the power in that is to uh, remember that the elements that make up the paper are also elements we find within our very own bodies. Mm-hmm. So even we are not, separate from the paper we're not separate mm-hmm. from the tree and mm-hmm. in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition the Plum Village tradition uh, there is a tree hugging practice mm-hmm. um, and so hugging the tree I know at some time that was uh, considered kind of woo woo or hippie <laughs> or uh, <laughs> said in a pejorative sense but part, part of the power of the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh was to animate that mm-hmm. which typically typically we found we find inanimate Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. animate that Mm -hmm. um and then also uh Thich Nhat Hanh and Martin Luther King Jr. came to know each other right Mm -hmm. so Martin Luther King Jr. uh nominated Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize Mm -hmm. and it is said that Thich Nhat Hanh was influential in Martin Luther King Jr.'s thinking and advocacy around uh, ending the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. So I'm also guessing that Martin Luther King Jr. not only uh, 
um, advocated you know, for the end of the war, but also probably learned some things about interbeing mm-hmm. from Thich Nhat Hanh. And yeah. that seeped into his Christian theology. Yeah, yeah, very cool. One of the things that you talk about in the book is this idea of mobbery. And as you describe it, it's the core of the teaching of Buddhism and other faiths that one cannot overcome suffering without facing it as it is, which sometimes is painful. Um, would you talk about mobbery, describe mobbery, and why it's important for us to understand more about how this happens and um, maybe, um, you know, see some seeds in ourselves of how the beginnings of this can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Laurel, I'm glad that you mentioned that this is difficult to do, to take to face our own suffering. It is really difficult to do. And it's also necessary to do if we want to live as blamelessly as possible. Meaning if we want to, I'll put it this way, if we want to keep our karma clean, <laughs> yeah. it's really important to face um, our suffering so that we don't project harm and delusion onto others. So we live in a culture in the United States um, where vigilantism has been part of the culture uh, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. We've seen groups of people uh, gather together to do very heinous acts Mm -hmm. towards individuals, groups of people, neighbors, neighborhoods. So I coined this term mobbery out of that historical fact, in addition to the current situation where, again, people in political power have been encouraging their followers, their supporters, actually gather together to do harm to others. Mm-hmm. Now, what I'm about to say is likely to offend someone, but I feel like I have to say it. The political rallies that have been taking place in the United States for these last several years, where the rally leader incites fear, violence, and permission to act on his behalf if ever he is uh, attacked. And this is taking taking place right now. Mm -hmm. There are people on edge in this country right now wondering What's going to happen? What is the mob violence that is likely to take place if this person is held accountable? What we see now is permission to act as vigilantes with the government's approval. Um, And I say this 
also because this I coined this term robbery also because it 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 goes across po the political spectrum, right? This is not just a political thing. It, it is a I want what I want when I want it. And if I can't get what I want when I want it, because I'm powerless to do that as an individual, then my attention goes towards others who want the same thing, but can't get it by themselves. So then we get together with all of this aggression, this desire and aggression combined to pull forces together then now we're really deeply in a narcissistic zone here because it's all about me and us getting what we want at any cost. Mm -hmm. And if I throw the concept of civility in as well, rather than going through more civil means, discussion, process, decision-making, and living with the outcome of the decision, right. we'll bypass all of that and just get what we want. It culminated for some in the January 6th insurrection slash coup attempt. Some people say to this day that the United States is at war. Other people after a, let's say after um, the killing of an un unarmed black person, which is part of our culture, the, the response is to damage property, stores, and so on that had nothing to do with the crime. So basically what I see is narcissism writ large, mm. right? The validation of narcissism, collective narcissism writ large. And this goes back to one of the reasons why I wrote the book I think we need to have some spiritual practices to not be seduced into that, that to be reminded that we can actually tolerate not having things just the way we want them. It's part of the growing up process. We are not two-year-olds. <laughs> yes, yes. And I liked how you actually had, um, you had examples in the book of from both sides of the political spectrum that in addition to talking about the January 6th insurrection, you also talked about just, you know, the, the process of um, mobs going out and pulling down statues that might be meaningful to some other people. Um, mm -hmm. Again, to have their will just override any kind of a process of discussion or compromise or, you know, what have you, um, which then only furthers the divide, the us versus them kind of divide. Um, right. It's so not like people we see say, it on both sides. I'm sorry, Laurel. Yes. Agreed. And it's not like people just sit back and say, you know what, that's acceptable. Go, just go ahead and, and destroy the things that I care about. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It doesn't work <laughs> that way. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. it fuels aggression. Mm -hmm. And so then something is, you know, we can expect some retaliation down the road. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, it, it, you know, you can see the cycle 
you know, just the repeating, you know, the repeating cycle and not being able to be heard only underscores that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and um, makes it um, makes more alienation, you know, on the flip side, <laughs> talk about something more positive. Um, you talk about in chapter two, uh, the title of the chapter is Beyond the Golden Rule, Treating Others as They Need to Be Treated. The Golden Rule, I think most people are aware of the Golden Rule, is a spiritual teaching that we find in most of the world's major religions, and the traditional way that it's put forth is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But when you talk about it, you say we need to go beyond that to what you're calling the platinum rule. So would you say more about that? Why do we need to go beyond the golden rule? Mm-hmm. Um, why do we need to do more than just treating people as we would want to be treated? Right. Well, I guess I, I guess I get the sense that that's not enough in these days. Since our mm, our very makeup, I'll put it this way, our very psychological makeup is quite flexible. We think we believe one thing one day and then something happens and we believe something else the next day, right? So with that and the pressures coming from the top to turn against one another and doing so, I feel we need to have something a little stronger than what we've had in the past. That's how I feel generally. Now, as it relates to the golden rule, for a long time, I used to think, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, I I will treat others as I want to be treated. But the more I learned about people and the harm that we even do to ourselves, I think maybe we shouldn't be the template for how other people should be treated. We don't know how to treat ourselves, right? We don't know how to treat ourselves very well. So maybe we shouldn't be the template. And that's kind of narcissistic anyway, right? So um, rather than center myself as the source of knowledge about how somebody else should be treated, the platinum rule is uh, inviting us into being curious about another person before we even survey ourselves about what what we would want. Just be curious about the other person and ask, well, what do they need? Really, what do they truly need? And then move into asking rather than presuming. Then ask, Mm -hmm. what do you truly need? Mm -hmm. And be there for that. We can't always meet people's needs, right? We can't do that. But I think if we are... um, more informed from the so-called other about what their needs are, then that's an invitation to contemplate and uh, imagine what we might provide. And if that, and in that imagination, I'm guessing for a lot of people, not everyone, but for a lot of people, there would be a lot of joy in that imagination. Mm. How can I serve this person? Mm and then see if it can be done. Mm-hmm. Putting the other first rather than ourselves first. Mm-hmm. Well, unbelievably, 
we've come to the almost the end of our time together. There's so much more we could talk about from your wonderful book. I wish we had more time. In closing, what words of wisdom or inspiration would you like to share with our listeners? Mm-hmm. Laurel, I, I just want to say uh, yo- yoga is a beautiful thing. <laughs> yoga <laughs> philosophy, <laughs> yoga practice, yoga communities, yoga ethics. Um, and if there's anything that I can say, it would be just please do more of that. Please keep to your yoga practices and be that shining light in the world that you already are. Don't let anyone dim it. Wow, really beautiful. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been author, pastoral counselor, spiritual teacher, and activist, Pamela Ayo Yatunde. Her website is her name, Pamela Ayo Yatunde, and again, Ayo is A-Y-O, Yatunde, Y-E-T-U-N-D-E, Pamela Yatunde.com, where you can find out more about her books and her work. This link will be on our webpage, our webpage at theyogahour.com. So thank you so much, Ayo, for joining me today on The Yoga Hour. Thank you. For listeners, we hope you will join us for the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. There is daily online meditation in the mornings at 6.30 a.m. Pacific, afternoons at 4, and Monday evenings at 7.30. Again, all those times are Pacific time. There's a Sunday satsang. Satsang is a gathering of truth seekers that happens online and in person in San Jose, California at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. You might also be interested in Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien's other podcast, which is called Kriya Yoga Today. You can check that out wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about these and many other classes and events at csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when yoga teacher and energy worker Lauren Walker will join me to discuss simple, practical, and gentle tools to truly heal from your life's trauma and stressors. The Yoga Hour is a service project for the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're enjoying it, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.